Hello and welcome to the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast about some of the ideas that will be in the air and up for discussion at the 2017 Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. This year's theme, Growth and Inclusive Prosperity. With me is one of the forum participants, Bob Collimore, Chief Executive of the Kenyan mobile phone company Safaricom. It's renowned not just in Africa as the company that's been a hugely successful pioneer of mobile phone money. Under the brand name M-Pesa, it was launched 10 years ago, and it has been the most tremendous success. Bob, it's a good example of how digital changes things quite radically, and not just in the developed world. Of course. You know, in Kenya and in much of Africa, the population is largely unbanked. And that means people are excluded from some of the very basic services that we take for granted in the West. And so what mobile money did was to, a phrase which we use quite a lot, it leapfrogged the need for opening a bricks and mortar bank. And people were sending money up country by entrusting it to the bus conductor, that sort of thing. And sometimes the bus conductors were even honest and would deliver it. And so the challenge that people had is that, one, it took a great deal of time, and two, it cost a great deal to get the money from one place to the next. And the mobile phone came along, and that was, of course, a revolution in connectivity in Africa because it wasn't replacing anything apart from physical face-to-face, was it? It wasn't replacing copper wires in the ground. Well, well, that's right. And even if you were extraordinarily wealthy, it could still take you three years to wait for a, a fixed-line phone. And until now, I think we still have less than 100,000 fixed phones in the country. And across the continent, you know, that's replicated 50 times. So the takeoff of mobile phones, I think... When I went to see Safaricom under the previous CEO, Michael Joseph, about 10 years ago, the takeoff was almost vertical. This was a runaway success from day one, wasn't it? I think Michael had anticipated that um, he would probably hit something like 200,000 uh, and then it would level off from there. And today we have about 28 million. And you have mobile money, an extraordinary idea which has worked superbly well in Kenya. It's worked in Kenya. It's also worked pretty well in Tanzania. And what mobile money did is it answered a very clearly defined need, and that was to move money from one place to the next. People have tried to replicate it. It hasn't really worked in many other countries because what you're doing is you're taking a solution and trying to find a problem. How do you mean everybody in Africa has that problem, don't they? Everyone has the problem, but, you know, there is something which is peculiar about uh, Kenyans, and that is that they had the need to move money upcountry because most people left the village and they worked in the urban districts and uh, the remittances back to the village is probably much greater than most other places. If you take Mozambique, families are still pretty connected. Uh, They don't have that distance of separation. But in South Africa, in uh, Nigeria, it hasn't worked half as well and I would have thought there was the same distance from the family problem in South Africa, for example. So there you have a problem, because I think uh, the South Africans believed that because they were already a banked society, a largely banked society, they didn't have the need for it. But that's because they didn't understand what mobile money did. And mobile money wasn't replacing banks. What mobile money was doing was simply moving, allowing you to move money from one place to the next instantly, not replacing banks. 
And you were in alliance with banks? Of course. We couldn't do it without banks. And so what the system did is it took the money which was sitting in the informal economy as cash and put it into the banking system. So today, at any one point, we have about $600 million which sits on deposit. I mean, it's moving around pretty quickly, but $600 million which was previously held as cash in the informal economy. And of course, it's not so wonderful these days because a lot of people with smartphones have mobile payment systems attached to them in many places in the world. So what are they doing? Catching up with you? I think they are trying to catch up with us. But again, the, the need is not really clearly defined. So if you take Apple Pay, for example, you know, you can go into uh, W.H. Smith's here in London and you can pay using Apple Pay. But to come back to the fundamental need was to move money from one place to the next. And um, it's then moved on from that, and it's, it's now addressing many other problems. You know, one problem that it's addressing is the absence of power to much of Africa. Most of Africa is off-grid. Absolutely. I, you know, I think in our country, it's probably about 60 to 70%, which is off-grid. And I can tell you that the tail end of that will never get on-grid because it will cost about four or $500 just to get connected. And this means that many villages and the people living in many villages are dark after sunset. It means that children can't do their homework. It means that industry stops at sunset, which is usually at, at around 6 o'clock. And it means that people spend more money on food because you can't store food because you don't have a refrigerator in a hot country. How does mobile phones help that? I love this. I love this product. We, we've worked with a company called Mkopa Solar in Kenya. And Mkopa Solar has bolted together a SIM card, a solar panel, some lights... And then that's now extended, so you can now have a radio, you can now have a, a TV. Now, the, the role of the SIM card and M-Pesa is that it allows you to pay as you go. So you can pay daily, if you like, and typically it's about 50 US cents. You pay daily, and uh, if you don't feel like paying, then the panel is disconnected. Disconnected for the day? Deactivated until it's, it's topped up, effectively. You switch off their sun if uh, they don't pay? Well, we look at it another way. And, and in fact, what you do is you put the power back into the hands of the customer. So the customer decides whether they want to have light today or not. And they, they may not. You know, they, they may be traveling. And why would you pay for something which you're not using? And after a year or so, then the piece of equipment is theirs, is it? Yes, it's effectively, if you think about it, like a higher purchase. You're paying as you go, and after a year, you have recovered the full cost of the equipment, and then it's yours, so you don't pay anything else, and it's used in an unlimited way. And this is you um, working with a solar company, working with a bank too, because this is a micro-loan, isn't it? It is effectively a micro-loan, and what the CEO for Copa usually refers to as asset financing. And I always say to, to Jesse, it's not asset financing, it's helping children to do their homework. And this has worked, grown and grown, and now you're adding other things onto the solar panels. It's grown in a number of ways. So today, I think we're approaching a million users across East Africa today. We are in other countries. In fact, we were visited by the president of Togo a few months ago, looking to see how he can introduce that into his own country. But in addition to that, we've increased functionality. We now have, in addition to lights and radios, we now have a TV. We're developing a small refrigerator. And I think the difference that would make to people who has perishable goods in a hot country. And the benefit to uh, Safaricom is that it's using the phone more and more. There's a couple of things. One is um, one pays by M-Pesa and you make a small transaction fee. But we also believe that if you can lift the tide, 
then all of the boats rise. And we firmly believe that an educated and healthy society is good for business in the long term. It turns you as a profit-making company into something like a social enterprise, whether, whether you like it or not, doesn't it? We believe in constructive capitalism. Of course, profit is an important leg of the stool, but we tend to think of the stool as having three legs. The first one is purpose, and businesses have to have a purpose. And without a purpose, there's no reason to exist. And the second, of course, is the people that you, that you work with, and the third is the profit. But the whole story is a dramatic example of what digital can do in maybe a world where you wouldn't have expected it to have an immediate impact, the developing world. Of course, and, and I often say that you know, innovation often comes from need. People who innovate just to prove that they're clever often don't get the, the results that they're expecting to see. Often when I speak to my Western colleagues, they find solutions in an app. And then I say, well, you know, the majority of my customers don't have a smartphone, so they can't have an app. And so when we design something, we have to design it for a $6 phone. And Pesa was based on effectively texting, wasn't it? Yes, m- many Western people believe that it's an app. It's, it, was designed, it was designed primarily for a phone with a black-and-white two-line screen. When I saw you last, of course, Nairobi was Silicon Safari and the takeoff based on mobile money of people developing companies to use mobile money in all sorts of ingenious ways was intense, wasn't it? Still going on? Yes, it still is a bit of a Silicon Savannah. Um, We probably have more failures than successes. And uh, there are a few problems that we need to address. The first one is how do you help people to get access to capital? It's actually easier for someone coming from Stanford to get funding from a venture capitalist than it is for someone who sits in Nairobi. Even though they're trying to serve Africa. Absolutely. And part of the problem is that these young developers and young innovators, they don't know how to work the system. Whereas if you've gone to Stanford or you've gone to MIT, you know exactly how to make this thing work. You certainly know how to pitch, don't you? Uh, you, you, yeah, they do learn how to pitch. But, you know, what I'm finding is I'm finding some, some young people, you know, people in their 20s, early 20s, who are coming up with some fantastic ideas. And the role that we have as a company is to help those young people to develop. I mean, I'll give you one good example. I was a judge on uh, the Holtz Prize for the Clinton Global Initiative last year. And the team that won was a, a young team. They were 22 years old. They hadn't even finished university. Three girls and a boy. And they developed a, a solution for the Matatu industry. Matatu industry is the, the minibus taxis in Nairobi. And these, these young kids did a fantastic pitch. And I was so proud because they were one of the only Kenyan teams. And they won a million dollars to develop it. A booking system. It's effectively a booking system using a basic phone. Then I felt that my role was to help to mentor these young people when they get back home to help them to succeed. Another example recently of two young girls, and girls are playing a big role in this space. Two young girls, again, they were 22 years old, who have developed a data analytics product for farmers. And when I said, why did you do that? You know, why didn't you go out and find boyfriends? In a sort of patronizing way that I do. And they said, because my mother was a farmer, and I understood the problems that she faced. No one would lend her money because she didn't have a credit score. And so this uses data analytics, freely available data, to create a credit score and to do predictive earnings for the farmer. This is quite a move from the early uses of the mobile phone in Africa 
when a farmer, or rather a village, could find out what different crops were being priced at in different markets, rather than having to go through the local merchant who would collect their crop and give them a take-it-or-leave-it price. And that was the, the early benefit of mobile phones, wasn't it, to farmers? Yes, it was, and it's now developed in a myriad of different ways, and I think agriculture applications is certainly a, a big part of our future. So if you take a farmer, small farmer in Kenya, it probably has one or two cows, probably getting about six or eight liters per cow. Now actually best in class is about 20 liters per cow. And so how do we help them to get there? And when they deliver their milk to the milk processor, how do we help them to understand how much of the milk has been processed and what price and how do we get paid immediately rather than wait for the end of the month? And that creates a huge problem on their cash flow. So the consequence is the farmer then sells it to the local guy who just comes along and pays them whatever price he pays them. The theme of the forum this year, growth and inclusive prosperity, I think it's relevant in the West because of things like Brexit and the rise of President Trump. A lot of people feel excluded from the the general increase in growth in prosperity in their Western countries. But inclusive prosperity in Africa and the developing world is a very different concept, isn't it? It is. Some of the principles, the broad principles, are the same. But if you take a continent where the Gini coefficient is so great, it's a measure of, of the difference between the very rich and the very poor. And so we do have some African billionaires, and we have several hundred million African poor people. And now you're seeing that materialize in migration, and that will continue. Whether in Europe we like it or not, you will continue to see migration because the population of Africa is growing tremendously. Over the next 20 or so years, we'll have another 1.2 billion Africans around. And if you don't create the jobs for them, it's actually very difficult to create the jobs as we look at the, the march of technology. And so if companies continue, if businesses continue their march and their growth, leaving people behind, we are going to have a problem in the long term. So Africa needs new ideas about what business actually is? I think businesses need to find a new idea of what they are. And businesses for too long have grown at the expense of everything else. It's grown at the expense of the planet, if you look at human rights abuses. So all of those things are things which businesses really must, they have no choice. They have to turn their minds and they have to proactively address those issues. Yeah, but don't African countries want to catch up with developed countries? And doesn't catching up mean doing similar things and raising your consumer appetites to a similar level? Raising consumer appetites when you haven't the means to pay for it is a problem. And I've been saying for some time that we talk about the growing middle class in Africa and that creating opportunities for retail sectors. Now, right now in Africa, in, in Kenya, we're seeing retail businesses going out of business because you know people don't have the money to buy the stuff. And if you create high expectations and people continue to have limited ability to meet those expectations, you will have problems. But was Safaricom, in addressing things like darkness in villages, an exceptional sort of company, or is there a lot more room for that kind of um, African solution to African problems? We're a very big advocate to create many more Safaricom-type companies. And so we talk a lot about business with a purpose, we are a very purpose-driven company. We've always said that our purpose is to transform lives. Now, that might sound a bit of motherhood and apple pie, but actually, if you look at some of the examples we've given you, you can see exactly how we do that. And the reason why we continue, I think, continue to be a successful mobile phone company, continue to growth at rates which is, which is really not replicated in many other mobile companies around the world, 
is because we start with purpose. Can you keep it up, though? You have to keep innovating all the time. Uh, we have to keep innovating all the time, not to stay ahead of the competition, but to fulfill the needs of the society that we serve. That, that's the difference. As an industry, we have an amazing ability to fix climate. I mean, you haven't fixed the whole problems, of course, but to address climate change, to address human rights issues. Uh, human rights issues is a very good example. Well, phone company, what are you doing about human rights? Well, if you take refugees, we have some of the biggest refugee camps in the world in Dadaab and Kakuma. And the World Food Programme has to distribute aid because the middlemen come. It's also a very expensive thing. And so we've come, we've come back to M-Pesa. We've used M-Pesa to address that problem. The food aid is delivered directly onto the handset. The customer then goes to, to the duka, to the small shopkeeper, and buys the food in the way that you and I would buy it. And they don't have to line up or queue up to beg for food. I mean, that's one example. Healthcare is another example because the way many Africans deal with healthcare funding is, is by emergency fundraising and that's that's not sustainable and so we've started with a small company called mtiba and mtiba allows you to save small amounts of money and when you're sick as little as two dollars will get you health care and today we have a I think six or seven hundred thousand people who have signed up and are subscribing to that service you've described very fluently the advantages of capitalism of uh, concerned capitalism, of capitalism addressing problems that it can bring muscle to dealing with, coping with. At the same time, in a lot of Western countries, capitalism is looking pretty threadbare, isn't it? Uh, The banks, car companies faking their results. In many, many industries, they're not playing fair, are they? I absolutely agree with you, and this is why there's a small team called the B Team, Now, the B team was started by Joachim Zeitz and uh, Richard Branson and some other leaders. And it's called the B team because they figured out that plan A for business has not worked. Plan A for business has led to environmental degradation, human rights abuse, corruption, a very self-centered approach to growth. And so Richard and Joachim said, look, you know, we have to have a plan B for business. And so they pulled in some other leaders that include people like Paul Polman, Mohammed Yunus, Mary Robinson, a former Irish prime minister, and a number of other people to say, let's develop a new plan for business. And so we were quite vocal in pushing the, the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we've had a bit of a setback, but I think we'll get over that. We're pushing human-centric workforce. So we have a thing which we call 100% human work. We are pushing net zero by the year 2050. So we're encouraging more companies to commit to getting to net zero carbon emission by the year 2050. In fact, my own company are committing to do so by the year 2030. And we believe very much by leading by example. What does Africa need then? More entrepreneurs, more big companies, better governance, yes. What does it really need? I think Africa needs to grab the manufacturing opportunity sooner rather than later because that opportunity isn't always going to be there. Africa doesn't make anything. Africa doesn't feed itself. It imports 30% of the food it eats. Now, this is ludicrous. It is ludicrous that the continent that has more arable land, more available arable land than the rest of the world, 60% of the available arable land is in Africa, and we're still importing 30% of the food. Our clothes are made in China or Vietnam. Our cars, of course, are made in Germany or elsewhere. So Africa needs to grab the manufacturing opportunity before robotics take many of those jobs away. I was going to say, can you actually do that? Aren't robots going to simply do it better, faster, in the right places, over and over again? That's the next 20 years mapped out, isn't it? It is, and I have a friend, um, Helen High, and, and Helen often says that China needs to find a home for 8 to 5 million 
jobs. And if Africa misses that opportunity now, the next time that cycle comes around, it'll be too late because technology would have moved on to the point. But also Africa has some other challenges around supply chain. So if you say, well, you know, can't you... Can't you assemble, do final assembly for TVs? Uh, they, 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 the Koreans or the Chinese will say, yeah, but where's the supply chain? There's no supply chain. And I'm not going to take all the equipment in there just to assemble it and send it out again. And the absence of infrastructure doesn't help. The cost of energy is, is not helpful. The, uh, the absence of roads and rails is not helpful. So Africa needs to take a, a much more long-term view. It needs to develop a worldview and then needs to understand where it sits in that worldview. Are you an optimist about Africa? You lay out all the problems that are, have yet to be dealt with. I am an optimist, but I'm not a blind optimist. And I think people tend to see things in black and white, either you're an optimist or you're a pessimist. I'm saying that there are a number of things that has to be done in order for Africa to realize its full potential. I was never one of the Africa rising narrators. I always felt the phrase should be, Africa could be rising. And it still could be rising, but it has to fix those problems. For inclusive prosperity to work. Prosperity can only be inclusive. If it's not inclusive, it's short-term. Many thanks to Bob Collymore, CEO of Safaricom in Kenya. He's one of the people who will be speaking at the 9th Annual Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. More podcasts coming up soon.